Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This was almost the perfect murder. Introducing a new podcast from Court TV. They were killed by their own children. Murder and the Menendez brothers. I just started firing. What was in front of you? My parents. Oh, that is on tape. <laughs> Murder and the Menendez brothers, a Court TV mystery. Available now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Welcome to a mini-season of You Must Remember This. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. We will have more fact-checking Hollywood Babylon episodes for you in December. But first, we're going to do a series of episodes peripherally related to my new book, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes's Hollywood. This book grew out of a recurring series of this podcast, which I did way back in 2014 and 2015, called The Many Loves of Howard Hughes, through which I covered the Texan aviator and film producer's relationships with the likes of Katherine Hepburn, Ida Lupino, and Jane Russell. The book, which I researched and wrote over a period of three years, goes several steps further, using the stories of ten actresses who were involved with Hughes, most romantically, some just professionally, to explore what it was like to be a woman in Hollywood from the late 1920s through the end of the 1950s. In addition to the actresses whose stories I've chosen to focus the bulk of the book on, Many, many other women encountered Hughes during his time in Hollywood. This series is about a few of those women whose stories I was only able to partially delve into in the pages of Seduction. Each episode will offer bits of information pulled from the book, but will also include outtakes and new research. Four of the six episodes in this season will deal with actresses who Hughes either romanced, signed to personal motion picture contracts, or attempted to do both. One episode will deal with a female writer and film executive who associated with two of Howard Hughes' early mentors, 
and who wrote candidly about the boys' club atmosphere of Hollywood in the mid-1920s, when Hughes arrived in town looking to make a name for himself in the movies. And today, we will begin the season by talking about the complicated and intermingled romantic and professional relationships of Howard's uncle, Rupert Hughes, who paved the way for his nephew as a Hollywood figure known for his colorful history with women. Join us, won't you, for chapter one of The Seduced. When Howard Hughes moved to Los Angeles from Texas with his first wife, Ella Rice, in tow, the 19-year-old heir to the Hughes Tool Company moved into the Ambassador Hotel. The Ambassador had opened in 1921 on Wilshire Boulevard, in an area that is now considered Koreatown, but was then, in the days when nearby MacArthur Park was lined with luxury apartments, considered part of the wider downtown Los Angeles area. Just a few years before the ambassador opened, it had been presumed that if the city of Los Angeles was going to sprawl, it would do so to the east rather than towards the sea, because as real estate developer William May Garland put it, people won't drive home from their day's work facing into the sun. Garland was wrong. People in Los Angeles loved to drive, loved the freedom their private automobiles afforded them, and the status they conveyed, even when conditions were less than ideal. And few things epitomized the spirit of the West more than a drive home into the sunset. Between the mid-1800s and around 1910, Los Angeles had slowly developed as a handful of far-flung enclaves, separated by expanses of dirt and sky, with a traditional commercial downtown, but no social center. Launched in the midst of record local growth, at the end of a decade during which the population of Southern California doubled, the ambassador sought to be that center. The hotel was very intentionally designed as a testament to the utopian qualities of the West, both the real things that California actually offered and the projected fantasies for which all that wide open space provided a blank screen. It had been designed to make the most of its placement on a slight hill, a site that had been rejected by previous developers as too challenging and expensive to grade for residential property, but with the right planning would allow for a structure that could work in tandem with the horizon and as a conduit for the sun. Architect Myron Hunt sketched out a layout that would fill every room with sunlight and arranged the public spaces so that at various points in the hotel, you could look straight through the building and have an unobstructed view 15 miles out to sea. The hotel was set back from the street, separated from busy Wilshire Boulevard by a wide expanse of grass bisected by a path, like what you might see at a country manor outside of Paris or London, 
except instead of pristinely manicured rows of pines, tropical ferns and palm trees swayed at the whims of the wind. The main building was Spanish style and surrounded by bungalows, the two Ur styles of California architecture coming together with no one structure touching another. There were flowers everywhere. And from the beginning, perfectly hewing to the model of overnight stardom, perfected by Broadway and borrowed by the studios that had already burrowed their way into the hillsides, a few miles north of Wilshire Boulevard, the hotel's dreams were realized in its headlines. Its opening night celebration happened on New Year's Eve, stretching into the early hours of 1921. And it was a happening, the kind of event that people who weren't there read about in the paper the next day and became determined not to miss the next time around. The splendor of the setting for the affair probably has never been equaled on the Pacific Coast, marveled the Los Angeles Examiner. The opening night drew what passed for old money Los Angeles, the Doheny's, Mr. and Mrs. Van Nuys, and other people whose surnames hang above the city's widest boulevards to this day. And the movie people soon followed. The hotel became a home away from home for stars who had not yet built their own mansions and those who wanted to throw classy parties, but lacked both the infrastructure and the refined know-how. The ambassador let such nouveau riche buy their way into a high society experience rather than earn their way in socially. The hotel became the first place in Los Angeles where the elite of established industries like banking and building mingled easily with the stars and moguls of a film industry that had, in just over a dozen years' time, risen from the cultural gutter to become a beacon calling pilgrims from all over the world to Southern California. Two of those pilgrims who preceded Howard Hughes as residents of the ambassador were his father, Howard Hughes Sr., who moved into the hotel after his wife suddenly died, and the elder Howard Hughes's brother, Rupert Hughes. In 1919, after filming Broken Blossoms, D.W. Griffith decided he was through with Hollywood and returned to the East Coast, where he opened the first repertory movie theater, designed to revive his own classics. With Hollywood's greatest filmmaker to date having skipped town, producer Samuel Goldwyn spotted a vacuum of quality filmmaking and an opportunity to broaden the appeal of motion pictures by lending them a pedigree. Goldwyn launched a campaign called Eminent Authors, designed to bring literary stars to Hollywood to translate their talents to the writing of photoplays. One of the eminent authors he lured to Los Angeles was Rupert Hughes. By this point, Howard Hughes Jr.'s uncle Rupert had already traveled the world working for Encyclopedia Britannica, had served as a captain in the Mexican Border Service, and then a lieutenant colonel in World War I, and had become a literary celebrity 
writing best-selling novels and hit plays that made him the toast of New York and made a tidy secondary profit in sales to Hollywood. Rupert had authored his first original scenario in 1916, Gloria's Romance, a serialized vehicle for Billy Burke, wife of Florenz Ziegfeld. Rupert collaborated on the script with his wife, Adelaide, a former actress and aspiring poet with striking red hair. Such was the marketing value of Rupert's name and the questionable ad of Adelaide's that Gloria's romance was promoted as a motion picture novel by Mr. and Mrs. Rupert Hughes. Adelaide, whom Rupert married in 1908, was the second Mrs. Rupert Hughes. Rupert's first marriage to Agnes Hedge began in 1893 when Rupert was a 21-year-old student at Yale and Agnes was 19. She gave birth to a daughter named Elspeth four years later. While Agnes was raising their daughter, Rupert established himself as a published poet and novelist, and then playwright. When Elspeth was six, Rupert filed for divorce. Agnes countersued. Both partners claimed their spouse had been unfaithful, and a headline-making trial ensued. Agnes testified that Rupert had called her a Bowery washerwoman and had told her she was living an adventurous and adulterous life. According to Agnes, Rupert threatened her that if she did not agree to a divorce, he would make the name of Hughes so odious that she would be glad to get rid of it and gave her to understand that he had no further use for her. Agnes countered with her own charges of impropriety. In an affidavit, she described Rupert's degenerate tastes and habits, claiming he boasted openly of his illicit relations with other women. When asked on the stand if she had seen her husband kiss her female best friend, Agnes responded, I have seen Mr. Hughes kiss nearly every woman who ever came into our house. Later, the New York Times gave the headline, Use Violence to Defend Hughes' Jury, to a story about how several lawyers, as well as two of the eight men named by Rupert as Agnes's lovers, almost mobbed the jury as they left the courtroom. The alleged lovers of Agnes were so persistent that the officers assigned to protect the jury got into a hot fight with them and finally knocked one or two of them down. The divorce was eventually settled out of court, and Agnes swiftly married one of the men with whom Rupert had alleged her to have been unfaithful. Immediately after his marriage to Adelaide, Rupert cast her in a play. For the first decade of their marriage, they would live mostly in New York, with Adelaide's two children from a teenage marriage, Rush and Avis. Rupert supported Rush and Avis, and they took on his surname, but he never legally adopted them. 
1916, Rupert invited his wife to collaborate with him to write Gloria's romance to ensure an authentic female perspective. Over the next few years, Adelaide transitioned away from acting to focus on writing, mostly poetry. After 1919, Rupert's new career demanded that the couple spend increasingly more time in California. And in 1921, he and Adelaide made a semi-permanent home in a 42-room mansion at 2425 Southwestern Avenue in what is today called South Central Los Angeles. Rupert and Adelaide had separate bedrooms. Rupert's was painted dark blue to facilitate his habit of sleeping all day after writing all night. The house was about two and a half miles south of the Ambassador, and Rupert would occasionally throw evening parties at the hotel. In defiance of the myth of California's restorative powers, Adelaide Hughes almost immediately started suffering from colitis, so severe that it necessitated several operations. Adelaide came to believe that what she needed was an escape from paradise. She wanted to take a cruise around the world. A rift opened up in the marriage because Rupert didn't want to go with her. Rupert didn't want to go anywhere. He had quickly fallen in love with both the industry town and the industry, so much so that he felt protective of Hollywood. And Hollywood was about to need protecting. Between 1910 and 1920, the population of Los Angeles nearly doubled, and the film industry was now the fourth biggest in the nation, trumped only by steel, railroads, and cars. But Hollywood's national profile was starting to be made not by the success of its products, but by the scandals that increased scrutiny of the industry, resulting in the establishment of Will Hayes as the public face of Hollywood on its best behavior. His first week in town, Will Hayes was the guest of honor at a party at the Ambassador, where Rupert Hughes gave the toast. Hughes was vehemently against censorship, but then so, in theory, was Hayes. That was why the studios had pursued him to run the organization that would substitute for government censorship. Hayes and Hughes both understood the need to sell the idea that Hollywood was being cleaned up while also letting the market ultimately rule. By this time, Rupert Hughes was known nationally as a fixture of the new movie smart set. He was included prominently alongside Charlie Chaplin, Gloria Swanson, and Buster Keaton in a caricature of Hollywood's elite by Vanity Fair cartoonist Ralph Barden and the Los Angeles Times' society column would announce with no small bit of amusement his every social antic. Of a trip he and his older brother, Howard Robard Hughes Sr., took to Hollywood in 
took to Mexico in 1921, columnist Edwin Schallert reported that the mayor of Ensenada gave members of the excursion the key to the city, and the local schoolchildren celebrated their arrival. In addition to frequent trips to Los Angeles and jaunts with brother Rupert, Howard Sr. happily took advantage of his nepotistic connection to the very center of the entertainment industry in other ways, too. On a trip to New York in the summer of 1917, Big Howard reportedly set his eyes on a model and aspiring actress named Eleanor Boardman and offered to introduce the 18-year-old girl to his brother Rupert, who at that point was a celebrated playwright who was just beginning to transition to the movies. This almost too cliché to be true pickup scene allegedly took place in full view of both Boardman's mother and Hughes's wife, Aileen Gano Hughes. If this really happened, it would have taken place when Howard Jr. was 12, the same year he went off to boarding school. He would, as an adult, often refer to this year as a traumatic turning point for him. In leaving the family home for school, he had been forced to separate from his mother before he was ready. This need for maternal attention made a convenient talking point in adult Howard's seductions of women, which is not to say that there wasn't something real to it. Hughes would be diagnosed post-mortem by psychologist Raymond D. Fowler as having suffered from avoidant disorder, a syndrome commonly suffered by those who experience some kind of rejection or isolation in childhood. The syndrome causes the desire for connection to other people to become so strong and so important that it turns into a source of anxiety, causing a feedback loop in which the sufferer further isolates themselves. That Howard Hughes Jr. lost both parents in the midst of the confusing years of adolescence could explain his struggles with this sort of anxiety, but psychologist Fowler believed the root of the problem began even earlier. Aileen Hughes died suddenly and almost inexplicably in March 1922, losing consciousness in the midst of a routine gynecological operation. Aileen and Howard's only son had just turned 16. It was a devastating loss for Howard Sr., who could not bear to return to the house he had shared with Aileen in Houston. He decided to relocate to Los Angeles, and he wanted to take his son with him. Big Howard eventually pulled his son from school entirely, rendering Howard Hughes Jr. a high school dropout. He'd follow Rupert to the studio and wander around, asking questions, soaking up the process of filmmaking like a sponge. He showed more sustained interest as a part-time playmate and protege for his father, who took him along to parties, modeled the process of wooing starlets, 
and gave him lectures about business. The father stressed to his son the importance of autonomy. Never share control, never share credit, and never share profits. There is some evidence that Howard Sr. had begun an affair with Eleanor Boardman before Eileen's death. 1922, the year of Eileen's death, was a watershed for Boardman. After years of modeling in New York, she was selected as one of the new faces of 1922, an honor which included train fare to Los Angeles and a token contract at Samuel Goldwyn's studio. Goldwyn, of course, was the studio home base of Rupert Hughes. Boardman's first film part came in The Stranger's Banquet, directed by Marshall Nealon, who had become friends with the elder Hughes men. Her second and third parts were in movies made by Rupert Hughes, Gimme and Souls for Sale. Souls for Sale has outlasted any other picture on Rupert Hughes's filmography. Based on Hughes's own novel, it was intended as a passionate defense of the film industry against the scandalmongers in the form of a behind-the-scenes satire. Souls tracked the adventures of an ingenue with the unlikely name of Remember Mem Stodden, who gets bad vibes about her husband while en route to her honeymoon and ends up jumping off the train and wandering into the desert shoot of a movie. By the time Boardman was making her ingenue debut in a Rupert Hughes film in late 1922, Big Howard was a widower whose teenage son tagged along to parties, such as the regular Sunday brunches at Uncle Rupert's house. It was at one of these brunches that Howard Jr. first met Boardman and became infatuated. One day, Howard invited Boardman over to his suite at the Ambassador to meet his son so they could all go to a party together. Big Howard, according to Boardman, tried to sell me young Howard by telling me he was going to be so rich. For a few Sundays, Eleanor allowed young Howard to pick her up and take her to Rupert's parties, but she was not sold. With the benefit of hindsight, Boardman claimed she could spot Hughes's future eccentricities way back in 22. He was strange from the beginning. But Boardman's relationship with the elder Howard was such that, with his urging, she agreed to go out with his son. Once on what was probably his first real date, and with a woman about five years his senior, who had been a professional model in cosmopolitan New York and was in the process of being groomed into a movie star, young Howard didn't impress. Eleanor reported that she found Sonny to be unattractive, very shy, hard of hearing, difficult. It seems likely that whatever kind of relationship Big Howard had had with Boardman, by this time they were not engaged in a serious romance. Immediately after Souls for Sale, Boardman made her first film for director King Vidor, who she would eventually marry. 
and Howard Sr. seemed to be making the most of the single life. He had always lived large. His stepniece reported that he was the first person to own a car in Houston. But after his wife's death in March 1922, he took up residence at the Ambassador Hotel and ran up the kinds of bills on things like jewels, flowers, and Brooks Brothers tuxedos, which suggested that he had thrown himself into bachelorhood with the same vigor he had applied to the source of his fortune, mining. Howard Hughes Sr. was not a strikingly handsome man, but he had something his much more conventionally attractive son didn't have. People liked him. After his father's death, Howard Jr. would become unusually introspective in talking about his father's combination of aggression and charm. He had a hail fellow well-met quality that I never had. He was a terrifically loved man. I am not. I don't have the ability to win people the way he did. I suppose I'm not like other men. Most of them like to study people. I'm not nearly as interested in people as I should be, I guess. The year and a half or so that Howard Hughes Sr. was single in Hollywood, from mid-1922 through the end of 1923, coincided with the peak of his brother Rupert's film industry success. The first quarter of the year brought two Rupert Hughes film releases. Souls for Sale would open in March, just two months after the wide release of Gimme, which was promoted as the truest film play you ever saw, picturing the real joys and monthly bills of wedded bliss. Mrs. Rupert Hughes had a writing credit, but Adelaide's contributions were no longer highlighted in the press. Adelaide herself was floating out of the center of Rupert's sphere of influence. The physical pain she was in and her depression fed on one another. Eleanor Boardman said she saw Adelaide popping pills and assumed Mrs. Hughes was addicted to drugs. In late 1922, with her husband at the peak of his Hollywood success, Adelaide gave up on her dream of traveling the world with Rupert and embarked on the voyage without him, sailing to China accompanied by a nurse. Adelaide returned to Los Angeles in early 1923, at which point Rupert was beginning to direct Reno, another film about marriage, which husband and wife had co-written. Rupert's biographer, James Kem, notes that the film gave Rupert an opportunity to expound on his views about the unfairness and inconsistency of divorce laws. These views were by now legion. Marriage is the greatest bunko game in the world, Rupert had declared two years earlier in an Adela Rogers St. John's piece published in Photoplay. If a man has a wife he doesn't like, he should get rid of her as soon as he possibly can. 
In the plot of Reno, a bigamist deals with the consequences of having taken three concurrent wives, each his legal bride in a different state. Rupert himself was on his second marriage and would soon begin the relationship that would become his third. A small part in Reno was played by an actress born as Elizabeth Patterson, who went by the screen name Patterson Dial. Dial had begun her career in New York, appearing in D.W. Griffith's Way Down East. By 1925, she would be known to her friends as Pat Hughes. In August 1923, Adelaide decided to take another cruise to the Far East. Again, Rupert stayed home. Adelaide arrived in Peking and promptly rented a palace. Enraptured by her surroundings, she began devising an idea for a film set in China. She wrote to her husband about her idea, but Rupert shot her down, telling her the concept sounded economically unfeasible. Dejected, Adelaide became depressed. She told Rupert she had decided to sail around the world. Rupert told her he'd meet her when she got to France. She began suffering from an earache and got off the boat in Haiphong to see a doctor. She returned to the boat in a terrible mood. That was the evening of December 13th, 1923. The next morning, Adelaide's lifeless body was found hanging from a luggage strap. Rupert learned the news from a man named A.M. Kirby, who worked for Standard Oil in Haiphong, and sent him a telegram that read in part, Adelaide Hughes committed suicide here today. In the New York Times the next day, Rupert called Adelaide, a brave, brilliant woman, whose lack of self-confidence alone prevented her from being known to the world as I know her. One month and one day after Rupert Hughes's wife hung herself, he got word of the death of his brother, Howard Robard Hughes Sr. Howard had gone back to Houston for meetings at the Hughes Tool Factory and had dropped dead of a heart attack at work. Rupert Hughes was omitted from Big Howard's will. Rupert's biographer James Kem, who was also a distant relative of Hughes, suggests this was because Howard knew Rupert had money of his own. In Air Not Apparent, a chronicle of the protracted battle to determine the fate of Howard Hughes Jr.'s fortune in the absence of a will, author Suzanne Finstad paints a more complicated portrait of Rupert Hughes. In Finstad's telling, Rupert was at the time of his brother's death reeling from the very recent suicide of his troubled wife, Adelaide. He was in double mourning, but he also owed a lot of money. And Rupert himself indicated that the two crises might have been related. In a memorial to Adelaide, which Rupert wrote to begin a volume of her poems, which he posthumously published, 
the widower gave only slightly coded reference to his second wife's habit of spending his money. When we were married, we had not much money. Later, she had a good deal for a writer's wife. Then she indulged herself as best as she could in as much splendor as she could afford. She was called by many the best-dressed woman in America. In this same piece of writing, Rupert described his second wife's suicide as a ghastly and desperate conclusion, like Sappho's leap from the Lucadian cliff. Just when you thought Rupert Hughes couldn't get more bizarrely insensitive, he associated his second wife's suicide which likely took place after Rupert had begun a relationship with his third wife, with a myth about how one of history's most famous, sexually voracious women took a dive off Lover's Leap when a man rejected her. By mid-1924, Rupert had advanced to an executive position at the newly formed Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer studio. And he would soon announce his engagement to Patterson Dial, the actress whom he had met on the set of his film, Reno, before Adelaide's death. The pair would marry in December 1924 and move into, you guessed it, the Ambassador Hotel, before embarking on the construction of a new mansion on Los Feliz Boulevard at the base of Griffith Park. Rupert had designed the home himself in a blue and white style of Moorish architecture inspired by his love for Arabian Nights. There was an enormous library where Rupert kept five different desks, each intended to house a different project. The new home was built around an atrium, which housed an indoor swimming pool. The house is still there. If you live or work near Los Feliz, you might drive past it nearly every day. The timing of these events was enough to sour Adelaide's children from an earlier relationship, Rush and Avis, on the man who had unofficially adopted them. Both my sister and I had developed a resentment. Rush Hughes would say, to the fact that Father Rupert had allowed my mother to go off alone on a trip around the world, on a boat that had no medical officer. And then, very shortly after my mother's death, he made an association with another, much younger, woman. Rupert was 52. Patterson Dial's birth date has been a matter of dispute, but she was likely 30 years younger than her new husband. Rush and Avis never saw Rupert again after the announcement of his engagement to Dial, and Rush implied that Rupert and Patterson cut him and his sister off, saying, They dropped a curtain between us. Some years later, a close female friend of Patterson's would recall asking Rupert about his relationship to Rush Hughes, who then had a radio show in San Francisco. She was shocked when Rupert responded, That man is not my son. He is not my adopted son. In my opinion, he is an imposter who has always used my name 
as a stepping stone. If Rush Hughes had a rival for Rupert Hughes's animosity, it was Howard Hughes Jr. In later years, once his nephew had become a subject of public fascination, Rupert would somewhat revise the family history. But at the time of Rupert's marriage to Patterson Dial at the end of 1924, the relationship between he and Howard Jr. had apparently soured into permanent estrangement, thanks to Sonny's actions in the immediate aftermath of his father's death, which I detail in Seduction. Patterson supposedly wouldn't allow Howard Jr. in her house. Not that many people were invited over. Where Adelaide, when healthy, had loved to entertain, and Rupert had become known for hosting parties, Pat Hughes was more private and reserved. With the 1920s drawing to a close, Rupert's Hollywood currency began to fade, just as his nephew Howard's star was rising. Both Hughes men were nominated for Academy Awards at the first ever ceremony held in May 1929, Howard for producing a gangster film called The Racket, and Rupert for writing a picture called The Patent Leather Kid. By then, Rupert had published two controversial biographies of George Washington. His work in film would tail off in the 1930s. Meanwhile, Pat began publishing short stories, and by 1944, she had written a short, war-themed novel, which she failed to find a publishing house for. She took her own writing extremely seriously, and also toiled as an editor on her husband's writing. She often found herself so wound up, she couldn't sleep at night. One night in 1945, 73-year-old Rupert Hughes came home around 10.30 p.m. and chatted with his 42-year-old wife. She told him she planned to take a sleeping pill and go to bed. He went to work in his study until after 3 a.m. Before retiring to his own room, Rupert checked on Pat. She looked pale, and he checked her pulse and found it to be racing. He was apparently unconcerned and went to bed. In the morning, the maid came to wake Pat up and found that she couldn't. Patterson Dial Hughes died of what was either an accidental or intentional barbiturate overdose, making her the second of Rupert's two wives to die at a relatively young age due to what looked like a mysterious suicide. In the Los Angeles Times story reporting Patterson's death, Rupert acknowledged that she had been prescribed the pills to help with the anxiety she felt over her own writing. She had intense depression when she became morose because she felt her own writing was not up to the goal she set for herself. Often she said life was a vanity and that she could leave it anytime. Later, he would pen a letter to Frances McLean Smith, a daughter of one of his cousins, in which he worried that the long, 
grueling hours he subjected Patterson to, proofreading his own work, might have led to her death. I blame myself, because it was more than she could take. Rupert Hughes did not remarry. In 1950, he sold the Arabian Nights-themed house, and six years later, he died at the age of 84. Twenty years after that, Howard Hughes Jr. would die, and the strange tales of Rupert Hughes's life and marriages would be dredged up over the course of a long, protracted battle to determine the rightful heirs to his nephew's massive fortune. That battle is a story you'll find in Seduction. Next week, we will tell the story of a woman who came to Hollywood in the 1920s, determined to become a screenwriter, and 75 years later, ended up publishing an account of that time and place that sheds much light onto why the Hollywood film colony would have held so much allure for a young man such as Howard Hughes. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our editor is Olivia Natt. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Special thanks to our special guest, Noah Segan, who returned to the podcast to play Howard Hughes. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode with lists of all of our sources and the music used on each episode. And if you go to youmustrememberthispodcast.com slash seduction, you'll find information about how to pre-order the book that this season is related to, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes's Hollywood, written by me. We also have a schedule of events that I'll be doing related to the book, which include book signings, film screenings, and more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. So began the story of a charmless man Educated the expensive way He knows his Clara from his Beaujolais I think he'd like to